Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. Joining us back in Santa Barbara is the great Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to talk with you. Hey, Brandon. Always good to be with you. Now, I want to catch everyone up on a couple of exciting events here that we we just had. One of them I got to join you for was a visit to Seattle, Washington, where we stopped yeah. by the headquarters of Amazon. Tell us what you were doing there and how it went. I was there for a fishbowl, which is a um, interview about a book, and you're on stage at the Amazon headquarters with uh, an interviewer, and about, I don't know, maybe 200 people in the room, uh, and then it's broadcast around the Amazon uh, world, and um, we have, I think, a video of it uh, up now on, on YouTube, right? Uh, anyway, it was a chance to talk about my book, Arguing Religion, and uh, to be at one of the real centers of um, American culture right now at Amazon, I thought was was interesting. And uh, Seattle is a cool city. I've been there many, many times. I like it a lot. So I just enjoyed uh, that whole experience. Yeah, we'll be talking more about that event uh, moving forward. And I think we're going to take the audio of that Q&A fishbowl conversation. And we'll use it as a future episode here on the show. So, yeah, good. Uh, okay. If you haven't seen the YouTube video, uh, it'll come to the podcast here pretty soon. Listen, second thing I want to ask you about was something you just returned from a few minutes ago. Um, oh, yeah. You were at the Poor Claire's uh, convent there in California. Tell us why you were there and, and what you did. There's a wonderful community of Poor Claire's, just about five-minute drive from my house here over near the mission. And I say mass there once a month for the community, so I've come to know them pretty well. And one of the young sisters did her first profession today, and I had the privilege of presiding at that. I'd never done that before. Uh, so it was a good uh, turnout. Uh, a lot of her family members were there. And the poor Claire's, as you know, are a pretty intense uh, community. They're largely uh, contemplatives, and they're cloistered there. To me, the most moving moment after uh, she received her veil and the cord and, and we, you know, she was formally uh, professed, uh, her family came up and kind of one by one from the, from the uh, chapel, and they embraced her, you know. And one of the sisters said to me, it's very interesting, she said, that's the last time they'll ever embrace her. Because, you know, once you're poor Claire, you're, you're cloistered and you're behind the, the grill. And, and even family wouldn't have that kind of physical contact with you. So it was very moving because it was both congratulation and a kind of farewell, a kind of, you know, now we let go of you as you do your work for, for the church as a bride of Christ. So it was a very powerful ceremony to me, very uh, emotionally uh, moving. I know we use that uh, language of like becoming a bride of Christ. Does the first profession ceremony have overtones of, of like a wedding? And oh, you, yeah, yeah, are yeah. Are you playing the yeah. role of Christ the bridegroom in a sense? Not quite. The, the uh, promise is made formally to the abbess. So I'm there presiding at it. And uh, But the language of the liturgy and uh, the ceremony, it's all the language of, of uh, marriage and and bride, bridegroom, and the Song of Songs is, is uh, featured very prominently. So it's very uh, powerful, moving, especially, you know, yesterday, as I record these words, we had the um, gospel reading of the wedding feast at Cana, and the idea of, of Christ the bridegroom and the church the bride, and that runs right through the Bible. Your builder wants to marry you, Isaiah says, you know, so God, the builder of the whole universe, wants to marry us. He wants to share his life intimately with us. So this... Um, young sister today was giving very, very vivid personal expression to that. Well, today's topic is scapegoating on social media, on the internet. And it was sort of provoked in your mind by a recent incident um, where a group of young high school kids encountered a, a Native American elder who was chanting and beating a drum. This all happened in front of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. 
the encounter was captured on video and almost immediately the video went viral. We're talking mm -hmm. millions of views within just a few hours. And I think the initial impression was that here's yet another example of cultural insensitivity. These young guys are sort of mocking this Native American elder. The story has kind of shifted at the time we're recording this. Details are still mm -hmm. coming out. It's not entirely clear what happened. And that's not really the point of, of this whole episode. We don't want to adjudicate the facts of that encounter. But what you observed was the reaction, especially in social media, to this incident. So I guess, first of all, tell us like what, what you were seeing and hearing in the wake of this. Yeah, I came across this uh, video. As, you know, I think I was on my Facebook feed, and I was looking, and suddenly there it was, this video of, of a kid. And it was confusing, I must say. It still is a bit. This kid looking a bit awkward, grinning at this man who was very close to him, kind of almost face-to-face, -face, and he was beating a drum and chanting like a Native American chant. And then people were around. They were making noise and so on. The kid didn't really say anything or make any sort of gesture. He just stood and, and smiled. Um, now, as you say, most people took that as some kind of uh, condescending or patronizing uh, look that he was mocking the elder. And so as I scrolled through trying to figure out what was going on, I think there were at that time about 50,000 comments on Facebook, millions of views. Thought, My goodness, what is this? And of course, they were almost 100 percent at that point against the kid and they were as is typical sadly typical on the social media marked by a remarkable i mean cruelty but here's what really got me brandon <clears throat> and again leaving aside the details of what was going on i don't really know it's it's still kind of ambiguous what was happening there I, and i'm not here to adjudicate that i don't know what's on the ground but uh gosh the reaction the the cruelty but then People who were calling actively for this kid to be destroyed. And then people who had done some work and they found his address, his parents, you know, address, school, emails for various people, and and get him and send things in. <laughs> I remember thinking, my goodness, there let's say, let's just say for sake of argument, for just for sake of argument, that he's guilty of of being a, a racist jerk. And that he was acting like a like an idiot, the way a lot of high school kids act. Okay, let's say for sake of argument, that's true. <laughs> but the reaction of like tens of thousands of people who were, as I thought to myself, they're effectively destroying this kid's life, even threatening his life. You know how crazy people are. And now you're handing out here's his address and here's where he lives and and, and now email his his, his parents and his uh, principal and. I thought, oh my goodness, I mean, what is happening here to us as a culture when that's the reaction to the, this, at best, ambiguous event? But how the Internet is such a breeding ground for this kind of uh, nastiness and, and violence. And then it led me to Rene Girard, who is never really too far from my mind, especially in our culture today. I want to talk about Rene Girard and spend most of the rest of the episode on his theory of scapegoating and how it applies <laughs> online. But first, let, let's stick with that big rage-inducing reaction in social media because the what struck me was this wasn't an aberration. It seems the continuation of a pattern we've seen over the last several months, specifically on social media, on the political left, on the political right inside the church, outside the church, whenever you find something disagreeable, it seems like 
the first reaction is to jump online to signal my you know distaste with this and to generate rage to build a mob around this and then to come after that person has that been your experience too what you've seen yeah you know and i've used the internet i mean you and i know that and we've used it i think very well for evangelical purposes uh it's a good thing. I, I, I don't uh, engage in sort of unnuanced uh, uh, bad-mouthing of, of the internet or social media. But there is something that is um, fever swamp-like <laughs> about, about these comboxes, about the internet. They tend to breed very bad things in us. And I don't know, maybe it's the uh, anonymity of it that you can just, you know, just get on there and say whatever you want. It's the ease of commentary. You know, so years gone by, you want to complain about something, you had to write a letter and you had to put it in an envelope. And, and then some editor probably had to read it and, and, and approve it. It was screened. Now, I mean, unscreened uh, views can just tumble out of your mouth. Is the fact that you feel, oh, gosh, I can reach this giant audience right away, you know. But it gives rise to this violence. It, it brings out the very worst in us. Uh, and man, in a, in a frankly violent way. I think, look, say what you want about this kid. Again, for sake of argument, let's say he's, he's a racist jerk. I, I, I don't know that, but let's say for sake of argument. He's 17. He's a 17-year-old kid. That's the right reaction? How about ground him for a month? How about, you know, tell his parents to discipline him? How about the school could do – but hand out his address so that people can can attack him personally? I mean, he's a kid. But what is it about the internet that allows us to – Yeah, you know, some people have made this comparison, Brandon, I think is interesting because, uh, I mean, we all sense it. If you're passing someone in, in a hallway, so kind of, you know, person to person, and, and that guy kind of steps in front of you, I mean, you probably, oh, oh, excuse me, or oh, you know, shouldn't have done that. But now do it in a car, right? You're in a car and someone cuts you off. Man, we can be, we can be just immediately violent and and uh, and hateful in our speech. There's something about that anonymity or the hiddenness of it, or I can do it with impunity. You know, I know that they're not going to get back at me. Whatever it is, it's making the internet to some degree, uh, and again, I say to some degree, I want to be careful about that, uh, a fever swamp of some of the worst things in us. What do you think about this theory? Um, I've seen it in myself, of course, I've seen it in others, that it's just easy to call out injustice online. It doesn't cost you anything. You know, we're right. recording this right. on the the uh, anniversary of the death of Martin Luther King yeah. Jr. Like yeah. his fighting racial injustice costs something dearly. It was it required great sacrifice, but now it's so easy just to pop off a tweet or leave a comment on Facebook or something and you feel like you've done something significant. Yeah, it, right. And that's why the test of this is always a test of love. And, and I don't mean that sentimentally. To love is to will the good of the other. Am I saying something, which I truly believe, is willing the good of the other? It's going to accomplish something good. It's trying to move someone into a better space. Do I really believe that? that's really my motivation as I do it? I would suggest probably 9,000 times out of you know 9,001, that's not the motivation. <laughs> Rather, it's, it's to be aggressive, is to vent my spleen, is to express my dislike, or increasingly to virtue signal like hey everyone look look at me look how sensitive i am look how you know open to justice i am 
Well, I mean, la-di-da, who cares? If all you're doing is virtue signaling, that's actually undermining your moral um, integrity. You know, if you're critiquing another out of love, that has an entirely different texture. And one thing for sure, if we applied that rule, we do a lot less of it, <laughs> right? If you really apply the test of love, you would probably very rarely engage in this kind of uh, this kind of uh, speech. Earlier, you mentioned the name of Rene Girard, and you said when this whole incident went down, your mind immediately went to Girard and his famous theory of, of scapegoating. Tell yeah. us who Girard is and then a little bit about this theory. Yeah, great. Uh, call him Franco-American uh, sociologist, philosopher, born in France, but did a lot of his work in this country. Ended up at Stanford University. Uh, he died there just a few years ago. But Girard is most famous for this theory of, of the scapegoating mechanism, which in a nutshell is when these tensions arise in human communities, as they always do, by a basic instinct, it's largely a mechanism, mostly unconscious, we start casting about for a scapegoat, for somebody to blame. Now, is it rational? No, that's the whole point in some ways. It's an irrational instinct. We find someone or some group, usually who are a little bit different or odd or something, and we'll say they're, they're responsible. That's why we're fighting. Those people have caused the trouble. And then it's a sort of addictive move. When someone starts scapegoating and we hear about it, we, we want in on that. You know, let, let me join this, this group. Uh, that group quickly becomes a mob, right? Uh, that's deeply irrational. That's very volatile and very violent. And it's got a purpose, though. Its purpose is to find and identify and then cast out, even to the point of, of killing, in extreme cases, the scapegoat. And what happens is, in this dysfunctional way, we think, oh, order now will be restored to the community because we've come together and we've dealt with this you know, issue. Um, as everyone and his brother who comments on Gerard points out, uh, Hitler is a prime example of this, right? That what he did in the Germany of the 30s is a perfect example of the Girardian dynamic of blame the Jews for our economic troubles, our political troubles, our military troubles, etc. They're the reason why. Let's blame them, cast them out, destroy them, and we'll build up the, the good society. But this can be seen all over the place, you know. Now, here's what struck me. Girard was deeply influenced by the Bible. Uh, he, he got a lot of this theory from literary sources like Dostoevsky, Shakespeare, many others. But his main inspiration, it's fair to say, is the Bible. Because the Bible, he felt, both understood, unmasked the problem, and it showed the way out. It showed the solution. Now, read Girard for all the details on that. Or if you want, look at the story of the woman caught in adultery in the 8th chapter of John. It is a perfect exemplification of what Girard saw as both the problem and the solution. So I'll leave that there. But see, he was struck by the fact that one of the principal names of the devil is the Satan, right? Hosatanas in Greek, which has got its roots in Hebrew. The Satan means literally the accuser. That's why it can have the overtone in the Old Testament of the prosecuting attorney, right? So don't think right away of, of the a horned figure with the tail and everything. Think of a prosecuting attorney, someone that blames, that that accuses, right? Well, this comes up then into the New Testament very clearly. Think of in the uh, in the book of Revelation when, you know, the accuser of our brothers has been cast out, who night and day accuse them before God. He's talking about the Satanas, right? The Satan. 
the heart of the Girardian um, intuition is that we perform the satanic move all the time. A lot of our communities in their dysfunction are predicated upon the satanic instinct, accuse, blame. And the internet and the comboxes has become, I think, uh, sadly, such a breeding ground for just this kind of satanic uh, move. And that's what came to my mind as I read these comments about this this kid. Um, like, wow, we, has the satanic element been unleashed here in such an obvious way? That's why I say, you know, if you're looking for the influence of the devil, um, don't don't look right away for all the special effects from uh, William Friedkin. You know, <laughs> don't look for the special effects from the, the movies. And I mean, those things can be real, too. But look to Internet comp boxes and you'll find plenty of, of examples of the satanic, um, the accuser, the accuser of our brothers. What this is building up is a very false and ersatz sense of community, very dangerous. And see, Brandon, the church stands athwart this. The church's job, in the in a way, our job in the world is to expose the satanic, to to undermine it, and to propose the alternative, what Jesus called the kingdom of God. Right? That's a, a community predicated not on scapegoating but rather on, on love, on, on becoming vulnerable for the sake of the other, on forgiveness, on nonviolence. See, how all that is meant to reverse the momentum of the satanic. Um, so that's why, I mean, where's the church when it comes to the Internet, which is a major part of our civilization now? What's the church's role to, to um, overcome some of these really demonic tendencies? You mentioned John chapter 8, which, as you say, is perhaps the best exemplification of this scapegoating mechanism. You have all the religious leaders lined up around this poor woman, demanding that she be stoned and killed immediately. Then Jesus comes up and forgives her and tells her to sin yeah. no more. You say, though, that it not only exemplifies the scapegoating mechanism in action, it also shows the way forward, how to, how to solve this problem. Can you talk about that? Yeah, think of, of as they as they come to Jesus, right? And why do they come to him? Because one of the instincts here is that the sacred justifies the scapegoating mechanism. That because it seems to restore order to the community, it seems to be sanctioned by the religious authorities. Now, read Girard for the details on how in many, many religious and philosophical traditions, that's true that God or the gods sanction scapegoating violence. So they come to Jesus, this great religious figure, and say, well, Moses told us to stone such women. What do you say? They're looking for the sanction. What does he do? He bends down and simply writes on the ground. It's very important now that he doesn't cooperate with the scapegoating mob. See, the scapegoating mob builds up like a storm, like a storm cloud. Jesus does not contribute to it, but but undermines it through a sort of non-cooperation. Now, think you're king if you want, at Gandhi and company, that non-cooperation with evil is a key thing. See, don't add to it. Don't, don't uh, increase the intensity of the storm, but rather refuse to cooperate. Now, we all have this experience. If you're in a, in a little conversation circle and people are gossiping, 
they're they're scapegoating about somebody. See, we like that. We we by a deep, weird instinct in our sinful souls, we like that. Try it sometime when you come into a group like that and you reverse the momentum. You start saying nice things about the person being scapegoated. How popular will you be? Right? Not very. So Jesus, first of all, interrupts. But then the beautiful commentary from the church fathers, you know, what's he writing? The only time, by the way, he's ever described as writing anything in the Gospels. What's he writing? And we don't know from John, but the speculation from people like Augustine is he's writing the sins of those who are holding the stones in their hands. In other words, uh, interrupt the scapegoating momentum and then reverse it by inviting people to do a little bit of, you know, uh, self-examination. But then, then the final move is not becoming relativistic about sin or denying sin, but Jesus offers forgiveness rather than condemnation. So neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So the divine forgiveness is finally what corrects. So the, the momentum is stopped, first of all, but then it's corrected by the divine forgiveness, which ideally creates a new type of community. What if we had a community based not on scapegoating, victimization, but precisely on forgiveness? Um, Here's something I got from uh, one of the Girard commentators. I've never forgotten this. He said, in some ways, all of Girard is summed up by this. Whatever the problem is that we're facing, it's our problem. Now, see, it's it's very deceptively simple then, because... The, the scapegoating mechanism is, oh, no, no, we got a problem. Oh, yeah, it, it's you. You're behind it. You've caused it. Let's get rid of you. Say, Come on, everybody. Let's get rid of him. Rather than, okay, this is our problem. Now, that's not to say, you know, we're all equally to blame and all that silliness. But it's to say we all have a stake in finding the solution to this problem. And so it's precisely by the forgiveness offered by the community that we will solve the problem together you know i I would urge people you know this is on on the micro level the macro level is keep that little phrase in your mind this is our problem so let's say the kid with the indian elder and and the and the people all around and shouting and okay whatever's happening there and i still don't know exactly what was happening whatever it was this is a problem that we all got to solve together we all got to solve this together. Uh, and the path is therefore one of forgiveness and compassion and nonviolence, right? Man, the internet world, compassion, forgiveness, nonviolence, does that leap to mind? <laughs> you know? um, so that, that's what strikes me about a lot of this stuff is how literally satanic it is. I don't make that melodramatic, my statement. I mean that in a very literal way. It's based on the accuser, on accusation. You know, a few weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal did this big piece on on you. It was an op-ed profile of you and your ministry, and they designated you the Bishop of Social Media. And I know you kind of find that title a little bit strange, but suppose just hypothetically, these 50,000 people that commented negatively scapegoating this young man on social media were sitting in the pews in front of you, and you were their bishop, you were their pastor. What pastoral advice would you give them? Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll claim the title for a second. I think it is a kind of a dumb title, but I'll, I'll claim it for a second. I'm Bishop of Social Media, and I've got a spiritual responsibility to speak as a father to uh, the social media world. 
I would say if you are commenting in a way that is not motivated by love, keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Uh, Use the test of love. Don't sentimentalize that. It means, am I willing the good of the other? Just ask. In fact, here's what I recommend to anyone. And we all use the internet. Put up on your screen. I got a screen right in front of me here. Put up on your screen, willing the good of the other. Put it on the screen. Put it on the screen. Use old tech, a piece of paper. (laughs) Willing the good of the other. So that every time you are commenting on something or someone, you're reacting. Am I willing the good of the other or am I engaging in some kind of virtue signaling, spleen venting or scapegoating? If that's the case, shut up. Keep your mouth shut. Don't talk. Don't comment. If you can withstand the test of love. Yeah, I'm doing this because I really want what's best. Off you go comment all you want you know so that'd be my recommendation as as bishop of social media put that on your or how about on the other side of the screen put down this is our problem simple this is our problem well that means it's time for a question from one of our listeners and today we have a question from will in pittsburgh he's asking about what will happen to our memories when we go to heaven so here's will's question hi bishop Barry. my name is will and i'm from pittsburgh pa our memory something that we could take with us to heaven consider isaiah chapter 65 verse 17 Would people with memory-related problems regain their lost memories in heaven? It seems to me as though memories play such an integral part of our personal identities. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, What's the text, Brandon, uh, Isaiah 65 again? What is it? Yeah, let me read it here. It says, Isaiah 65, 17. See, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered nor come Hmm. to mind. Yeah, okay, because I, I don't think that has much to do with this. The question he's raising is a, is a cool one, interesting one. About um, I think that means that you know God's about doing something new, and, and we're moving beyond the old form, and there's a new world coming. But the memory question is a very interesting one, because I think that's right. It is very much tied to our personal identity. If you took away my memories, I mean, who, who am I? Um, my sense of identity is largely predicated upon memory. <sighs> Those who experience memory loss in this life, will they recover their memories? I would say yes. I would say yes, that in the new heavens and new earth, when God has reconstituted us at a higher pitch, I put it that way, he's not abandoned what's come before, but taking the whole of of me and of you and now reconstituting us, taking it up to a higher level. What Paul calls a spiritual body, he's trying to gesture toward that. I like John Polkinghorne, the um, Anglican uh, physicist and theologian, who talks about that uh, God's preservation of the form, meaning the, the great pattern that makes us up, but then on the basis of that pattern, constituting us at a higher pitch, you know, the way a, a computer might remember the form of something or the or the intelligible pattern and then be able to reproduce it. Now, again, it's, an, it's a metaphor because it, what God remembers is 
is the whole of, of me, the whole of you, all that makes us up. Even though in this dimensional system, you might say someone with Alzheimer's or, or dementia issues might have lost touch. But see, God hasn't. God hasn't lost touch of anything. And so God can reconstitute us at this higher level. So there I'd say, yeah, I think our memories are certainly preserved. Uh, our, our self is preserved. Our souls are preserved. But mind you, united with their bodies. I mean, so Christians don't hold to a Platonic view of like our souls escape from the body. No, God remembers and reconstitutes the whole of us, you know, body, soul, memory, imagination, the physical. I was like my friend Matthew Levering, who reflected a lot about these things, the, the last things, you know. He said, in heaven, we'll know the essence of God. That's so that there's a very Thomistic intellectual understanding of heaven. But he also said, but you know what? We're going to see something too. And I've always liked that. I think that's right. The instinct is right, that our bodies are involved. Our eyes are involved. Now, these grow up, my, my poor eyes, God help them. You know, they're falling apart. I hope they're reconstituted at a much higher level. Um, I won't need these, I hope. <laughs> you know, But uh, we'll see something. As well as knowing the essence of God, we're going to see something beautiful. Yeah, that's right, I think. But I think memories, yeah, they're preserved in God and then reconstituted. Well, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Word on Fire show. Listen, something really exciting coming down the pipeline next week. It's our first ever Word on Fire Institute online summit. This is like attending the best Catholic conference you could possibly think of. We have 12 amazing experts presenting all on the topic of evangelizing the unaffiliated. So you can sign up for that free by going to wordonfireshow.com slash summit. Again, wordonfireshow.com slash summit. And it all starts on February 19th. Thanks again for listening. See you next week on the Word on Fire Show.